Amen. Thank you, Meredith. I'm glad to say I called Jesus Lord. Amen. Well, to begin my sermon this morning, I'm going to take us into the city. We're going to go into the city of the New Jerusalem and look around a bit and get to understand some of the details of what exactly it means to call Jesus our Lord and Savior. It is a sincere hope and prayer of mine that each of you had a blessed time with family, friends, and even a solitary celebration of the Lord's birth this past week. Specifically, yesterday, or Christmas, contemplated all that his birth meant for humanity, and most notably, his church. At the beginning of my message this morning, please allow me to share our reading, according to the chart that we have been following in Revelation, specifically Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 through 17. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of this prophecy, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter by the city the gates into the city. Outside of the, are the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, and the murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to take of the water of life without cost. As we come to the close of our reading of the book of Revelation, but also through the entire Bible, here we find an invitation. Again, as we move into the new year, that we're going to see this morning that we could actually make this invitation our own. This is a way that we can invite people into all that we have celebrated for the past 30 days, for the Advent season, or even what we celebrated on Christmas. We want to know what are we inviting people into. What was born that fateful day 2,000 years ago that marks our salvation that is celebrated even 2,000 years later? It's important for us to consider and very important and vital for us to understand. What we're reading here is an invitation into the new Jerusalem, which came about as a result of God creating a new heaven and a new earth. For the past two weeks, I detailed that this is not just fanciful language used to further confuse you or have you dreaming of roads of gold and rivers flowing with milk and honey. Rather, the intended purpose of this writing was to reveal what exactly God was doing, meaning he was making it clear through Hebrew apocalyptic symbols all the while seeming like an impossible puzzle or silly superstition to the people who are not of God. This writing to the churches was intended to make things clear in regards to Jesus Christ. Those who would read it outside of understanding Jesus Christ would simply wonder what beasts, dragons, and all these strange things that we find in the book of Revelation are exactly. Sadly, we see that even in the church today, we see the churches largely confused about the book of Revelation. Most pastors are scared to even begin contending with the book of Revelation in the pulpit. I, on the other hand, believe that this is supposed to be clear. I pray that as we have gone through the details, as you receive the review sheets and you're offered the opportunity to go through the sermons, that 
you will really see the clarity in these regards. In the very least, I pray that I have given you a foundation to understand that this apocalyptic prophetic book was intended to give clarity to those who are in Jesus Christ. That's the very least thing that I hope I could have done, both then and today. It's not just for the first century. There's a relevance for us in the 21st century. Things that happened in the past, things that were going to happen in that then present first century, and things that would soon happen before that generation had passed away. Ultimately, what we would call the end of the age. That's what we're reading about in the book of Revelation. I imagine it would be virtually impossible for any of you, as I've already mentioned this morning, to retain all of the details that I have given for the past three months. So I do prayerfully admonish each and every one of you to use those worksheets. Use the review worksheets and really come to get clarity in regards to what this writing is talking about. The healing that it will provide for the nations is beyond beyond amazement. If you simply go on a social media and read about the things people are talking about and the confusion in regards to the things of God that is rampant in our culture, it's time for the church to really take serious what was revealed to us and why it was revealed to us. The last, this week, I want to spend some time looking at the text I read earlier this morning and allow for the text to detail what we are inviting other people into. One might say this is the proper place to start for evangelism right here in Revelation chapter 22. Surely a great way to begin the new year. So let's consider the whole picture really quick before we get into the details of Revelation chapter 22. The Apostle John has written this letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor. He tells them how God has worked with them and in and through them in the past, present, and the future. He says things past, things present, and things future. All of which he came to understand through a vision on the Lord's day. He reproves them, these seven churches, and admonishes them to walk worthy of all that the Lord had given them. We're thinking of regions such as Ephesus, Laodicea, among the other mentioned in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. I will be the first to admit that I approach any vision that comes from a man of God or a woman of God as suspect. I am a skeptic at heart. I don't just receive people's visions and wisdom as rightfully from the Lord. I imagine the Apostle John was a very credible source in that first century generation. He was one of Jesus' disciples. He was one of those who had seen the resurrected Lord. So we would imagine he would be pretty credible. And also the ways that he explains all the details that we find in the book of Revelation would have been very familiar to the Jewish believers that were now converting over to recognizing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior as the fulfillment of all that they longed for generation and generation in the past, and also the Gentiles who were beginning to see Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the truth. This apocalyptic writing would have made sense to those who were regenerated or made spiritually alive. Far different than the host of confusion we find when we open up the text in a 21st century uh, perspective. Throughout this writing of beasts, dragons, and a harlot city, the use of apocalyptic images spoke volumes to the events that were going on in those last days in the first century. And surely this would have confirmed the work of God. Not to mention the Apostle John is detailing how all the judgments and rewards that the Old Testament prophets longed for were now being given and made clear at the coming of the Lord. After a detailed image of how all of this was being and would be fully completed, in a Hebraic expression we would call this a thousand years, The Apostle John explains the destruction of the adversary. We read about this in Revelation chapter 20. And ultimately, the exaltation of the people of God. 
as we read through the last two chapters of his writing here in Revelation, we are given a beautiful and fantastic vision of all the glorious realities that would come about as the mystery of the ages was being revealed. Specifically, how God would fulfill his promises to his people. How would he make his presence known among his people? Both the living and the dead. This was all being accomplished in that time through Jesus Christ. I'm going to take us back to Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. During this series, I have continually detailed how heaven and earth is a phrase used throughout the prophetic writings to depict that the Lord, what the Lord was doing with his people, his covenant relationship with his people. The old covenant, what one might call the old heaven and old earth, was described in jots and tittles, a rather Hebraic way of saying details, of 613 laws found in the law of Moses, Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as well as the promises that are found all throughout the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Haggai, Nehemiah. We could go through all of these prophets and seek out what was the hope of Israel. What is the gospel? Again, I have a review sheet on that, if anybody is interested, just on that alone, on a contextual perspective of understanding the hope of Israel, as revealed through the prophets. Not what we can come up with in the 21st century and make our our best guess at, but instead, what does the Bible truly reveal about the hope of Israel? A time when death they now suffered, as a fulfillment of the curse they were told that they would bear if they failed to be obedient to God's old covenant law. This time, what we're reading about here in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 is a time when that curse was now being removed. All that we read about in Leviticus chapter 26, Deuteronomy chapters 31 through 32, was now being removed. There was no longer a necessity of you must be obedient or you must, you know, if you're disobedient, you will suffer these curses. All of that is being taken away in the details of Revelation chapter 21 through 22. The sea, there's no longer any sea, verse 1 says here in chapter 21. The sea was a reference to the Gentiles. They are noted throughout the prophetic writings as waters, the sea, those who were far off because they were not of the natural lineage of Israel. This was being done away with in Jesus Christ. That is the new heaven and new earth. As explained by the preaching of John the Baptist, he said that, Do not think you could say that you are the children of Abraham, for God could raise up children of Abraham out of these stones. Essentially, what is he telling them? That God can make children of Abraham that are not physical children of his lineage. Again, we read about that all throughout the New Testament, that that was what the transition was, that the children of God would no longer be done through natural lineage. The children of God would now be made through the Spirit, those who were born again. We see this in the parables of Jesus. How often does he tell you a parable about a city who was supposed to be the people of God? God planted a vineyard in the midst of this city. He rented it out to some vine growers, tells the vine growers to care for his produce. They They basically steal his produce. Don't give him any produce. Don't produce anything for the Lord. He sends his slaves to go collect of the produce, and these vine growers kill them. They keep killing everybody, then he sends more. They kill the next couple slaves. So then he says, well, they will surely listen to my son. I'll send my son to them. And then we know that they kill the son. These are parables that Jesus is giving in regards to the transition that was occurring in that generation, the judgment that would fall upon Jerusalem, and then ultimately how the children, the new Jerusalem, would not be of flesh and blood, but instead would be by spirit. Those who, those who worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And then we see this in the Apostle Paul's epistles. Very clearly, the Apostle Paul 
is demonstrating that the Gentiles who were far off were now being brought into the glorious realities through Jesus Christ. They were now allowed into the reality of knowing God as their own through Jesus. Again, all of this was new. This was really a new heaven and a new earth. Moving forward into Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem is detailed in Galatians chapter 4 as the new covenant. We also see this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 14. I'm going to read them to you real quick. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, gloom, and a whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and to the sounds of words, which were the sounds of those who had begged that no further word would be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriad of angels, and to the general assembly and to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. You see that text right there in Hebrews chapter 12? is showing the transition between the old covenant and the new covenant. When I read that text, I think of Meredith's song this morning of all the angels singing, who the angels and who everybody calls Jesus and how we exalt Jesus, both the church, the church of the living firstborn, how the angels exalted Jesus, and ultimately how we get to conclude all of that by calling him Lord. So you see, again, that is the fruition of what we're reading about in the details of Revelation chapter 21 through 22. The transition from that old covenant of a mountain that you would not dare touch, you know, of a a mountain that demonstrated law, that demonstrated the law of Moses, and that you should be fearful, your salvation in fear and trembling. Yet today we know our our salvation is by rejoicing, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. So we rejoice in the Lord today. We don't go to the Lord with fear and trembling and praying, give us atonement, you know, let us wait for the feast of dedication and all these things that the old covenant jots and tittles longed for. We live in the glorious reality of God here now, God present with us, in us, and through us. Last week I detailed the New Jerusalem's marriage to Christ as an expression of the fulfillment we find in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Essentially a new covenant. That was the hope. Give us a new relationship with the Lord because we failed this old relationship. The old relationship was not bearing fruit for God. It was a relationship that made us feel condemned or made the people of God at that time, not us, I wasn't there. However, made the people of God feel condemned, made them feel as though they were burdened by the the commands of the Lord. Today we get to rejoice in all that our Lord commands us to do. Revelation chapter 21 verses 3 through 5 is detailing the transition from being one covenant to another. The tears that in the morning that came as a result of desiring another covenant with God, knowing that all the wars and calamities that Israel suffered were due to their disobedience to God. So again, they were under a covenant that every time they were disobedient, they understood, well, here come the Assyrians, here come the Babylonians, here come all these nations judging us for being disobedient to God. I'm very glad that I'm not under a covenant that bases God being with me on my obedience or my disobedience. Thank God that he has offered a new new covenant contrary to popular thought is a fulfilled reality, not something far off that I'm waiting for. Today, we know the truth that God loved us while we were yet sinners. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Instead of a covenant of fear, we have a covenant of grace and love. 
that leads us to worship and live in a way that demonstrates hope, peace, joy, and love to a world that desperately needs it. Starting off with Revelation chapter 21, verse 6, we begin to read of the promises that all the nations are being invited into. They are being invited into this consummated reality once this transition would be fully accomplished. Again, pointing to the events of AD 70. Revelation chapter 21, verses 6 through 9 says, Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the immoral persons, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that fire, the lake of fire that burns with brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the wife of the lamb, the bride. Then the Apostle John begins to share the details of this new Jerusalem, this bride of Christ, in a rather symbolic fashion. I imagine jewels and precious stones were a way of describing wealth. Today we might say a city full of beautiful cars, um, some of the other things I might think of are mansions, or even nice iPhones. Everybody walking around with an iPhone in this beautiful city. That might be the way that if we were to write up a writing like that today, we would describe that in our fashion. So here in Revelation chapter 21, this city is described in all these beautiful jewels, And to be honest with you, I read through the text and I have no idea what half of those jewels are and do not want to have to pronounce them in front of everybody. So, again, you just, you you see all the clear demonstration of this beautiful place. This is going to be a beautiful reality. This would be an amazing, glorious reality that the Lamb of God would provide. The Lamb of God would be there. It would be lit by his light. Just like the kind benediction I received from Raven's grandfather this past Christmas, he said, Let his words be a light to your feet and a light on your path. A recitation of Psalm 119, verse 105. This is not a literal light in some far-off city. Raven's grandfather wasn't telling me that he hopes that the Bible will somehow illuminate my way literally as I walk through life. Again, he understood that this is a benediction to admonish me to live according to God's word. That God's word would be the light to my path. That it would be the principles upon which I would build my life. Ultimately, walking worthy of Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, The man who listens to my teachings and puts them into practice is like the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. When the storm comes, the house will not fall. What this is intended to convey is that his words would be used as the light of his people, which brings their world into sight. You live in a dark world. You can't see anything. We look at our world today, constantly groping for something, for satisfaction, for love, for joy, for peace. And yet we have it, and we need to offer it to them. That's what we're inviting the nations to see. We're offering it to them. We're the most inclusively exclusive people on the planet. We're inviting people to come into something that we exclusively enjoy. But we're opening the door. Come. Come on in. But of course you must. It's exclusive. It's all found in Jesus Christ. It doesn't say there's no condemnation for everybody on the planet. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Again, we see very clearly here in Revelation chapter 21 through 22, there's two realities. There's those that are in the city that are enjoying the tree of life, enjoying the river of the water of life, and then there's those that are outside that are still defined by their sin, still stuck as idolaters. All of us were idolaters at one point. Murderers. All of us were murderers at one point. I know that sounds strange, but each and every one of us have a little bit of hate in our heart that we need to confess to God and ask him to remove. So each and every one of us have been at the place of these people who are outside the city. 
yet we know that we're inviting them to put on the robes of Christ. Allow Christ to be your renewal. Allow Christ to be your change. Two specific promises that I've already mentioned are here in the New Jerusalem. The river, the water of life, and the tree of life. We read of the initial promise of this water in Revelation chapter 21, verse 6. It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. There was something said this morning in our prayer time that really stood out to me in this regard right here with without cost. One of the things Brother Brian had shared was in regards to other religions. We're the one faith that says it's not about what you've done. It's free. It's about what he has done. Every other religion, whether it's Buddhism, Islam, across the board, requires something of you. Whereas we believe, thankfully, that there is an elect. God has regenerated in our spirit, and he has brought us to him by what he has done, not by what we do. Surely that's a glorious reality. And as I read through the Bible, I'm grateful for all that God has invited us into. And I believe that we need to receive that so graciously and gratefully that we can invite the nations to partake of that as well. Here in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 2, it says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Again, I mentioned that we read this in Revelation chapter 21, verse 6. We could also read about this throughout the Psalms. You could read about this in the temple visions of Isaiah. Um, I'm sorry, Ezekiel. Temple visions of Ezekiel, he talks about the, the river that flows from the throne. And then you also could read about this in Zechariah, for example, where he talks about in the New Jerusalem, there will be water. If I may share with you Psalm chapter 46, verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. See, King David knew about this water of life. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it to the east of the Dead Sea and the half of it to the west of the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and in winter. Sure enough, we have already established that the new Jerusalem, or the restored city that Zechariah longed for, that would come through the Messiah, was not a literal city that would come with physical eyes. Rather, it would dwell in the hearts and minds of God's people, those who know Jesus Christ as Lord. The new Jerusalem is the new covenant. The water would therefore not be physical either. The water is inviting people in to enjoy all that Christ has offered. When I think of the water of life, the first thing that comes to mind, and most likely many of you are already thinking about this, is when Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. I'm just going to turn there quickly. In John chapter 4, verses 7 through 26, we read this. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself? And gave water to all of his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them shall never thirst. 
But the water that I will give him will become a well of water, springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. Fair. That's fair, right? That's what I would say, too. So, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or come all the way down here to draw again. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. That's where it gets tricky. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you have five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you, your people say that it is in Jerusalem. That's the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither you will worship in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You will worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is of the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is the one who is called Christ. The one who comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So very clearly, Jesus offers us the water of life. Clearly, Jesus is not offering actual water to the woman. He has no bucket, very confusing situation. He offers conviction to this woman by calling out her sin, and allows her the opportunity to be convicted by that and then recognize him as the Messiah, recognize him as the one who would declare all things. We understand this to be speaking about very very clearly in this text here in John chapter 4 about the transition from a natural covenant, the old covenant based in Jerusalem, which the Samaritans had divided from going all the way back in their history, and the transition to a new covenant, the new Jerusalem those who would worship God in spirit and in truth, in contrast to the natural lineage that failed. The natural lineage that began to build upon the things of God and create false commandments and false views of God. We think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in that generation. The Apostle John continues in Revelation, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The tree of life and the bearing of fruit should bring us back to Adam. That's where we should, our minds should go when we think about that. The demonstrated failure through Adam and his natural lineage, through Seth up to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth, to live in covenant with God and bear fruit to God was not there. They instead, instead of that natural lineage eating of the tree of life and enjoying the benefits of that and offering it to the nations, they decided to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's what we find with Adam. Then he separates his covenant with God, is cast out of the garden, And their lineage continues to do the same thing. Again, you would imagine God says to them, I set before you this day life and death. You listen to me, you will live. You disobey me, you will die. And that's what do they eat of for the rest of their lineage? What does Israel do throughout the time of the prophets? They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which essentially is law. They eat of the 613 commandments that lead to their condemnation, prove their sin and their death, and then ultimately the need for the Messiah. One can only hope that they'll receive the Messiah um, and listen to his wisdom. Again, going back to Matthew chapter 22, we know that does not happen. So, again, we're talking about this transition of covenants. So, the tree of life, which any man that eats of shall live forever, if you go back to Genesis, right? They're going to bar Adam from the, the garden because if he eats of the tree of life, he will live forever. 
Well, what's the one thing that each and every person in this room should know that if you eat of or you partake of, you live forever? It's the only thing that you can live forever if you eat of and partake of. It's Jesus. Jesus says, the man that eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood will live forever. So Jesus is essentially the tree of life. Jesus is the water of life. Jesus is the tree of life. This need not be a mystery. This is apocalyptic language pointing to Jesus. Essentially, everything Meredith sung to us about this morning, I thought that was the sermon right there. I said, that was it. That's the message. I call him Lord. That's it. That's what the whole point of this is. That's the beauty of what we know in Jesus Christ. The question is, what does it mean to call Jesus Lord? What does it mean to say that that is my Savior? I eat of the tree of life. I eat of the water of life. Again, I would just point back to Matthew chapter 7. Listen to his teachings. Know his teachings. Put them into practice. Do those spiritual to-do lists that I exhorted us all earlier this morning in the announcements to uh, follow. All the details found throughout the book of Revelation are pointing to the grand reality of the new covenant. All that would be made clear at the coming of the Lord. God's presence would be restored to those who persevered and held his kingdom in their hearts. The kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, as per Romans chapter 14, verse 17. Here in Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 13, we read, And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angels to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, Do not do that, for I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still, do, still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In an honest reading of that text... It is very hard to force these events into the yet future and give them a reliability. I am coming soon. Seven churches of Asia Minor. I am coming soon. I have my reward with me. I am going to bless you. I am inviting you in. Don't worry. Wait. 2,000 years. Be there soon. Just boggles my mind to read that text and try to come to how could this have been seen as reliable by the first century audience. Not to mention... In the earliest apocalyptic writings we have in our Bible, the book of Daniel, <clears throat> we read a similar exhortation. In Daniel chapter 12, the prophet Daniel is told to seal up his writing because the time is not yet. It's for a time far off. So seal it up because they, later generations would see the fulfillment. Well, if we see the fulfillment of Daniel in Jesus Christ, as most biblical commentators would, we would know that this gives the prophecies about 500 years. Daniel's far-off prophecy was 500 years away. A long time. I hope everybody in the room would agree with me that 500 years is a long time. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So 500 years, long time, right? Do not seal up the prophecies of the book of Revelation, for they are soon. What that means is that you have to make soon less than 500 years. That's it. This book had to be fulfilled if it was reliable within 500 years of its writing. Otherwise, John's awfully confused about something here. Very confused. 
Basically, do not seal was a way of demonstrating the nearness of this prophecy, being fulfilled within 10 years of its writing. Again, you could read about that in Kenneth Gentry's Before Jerusalem Fell, Don K. Preston's um, Who is This Babylon? You could read all of these details in many books that have shown you the demonstration that all of this found in the book of Revelation was fulfilled at the destruction of Jerusalem, A.D. 67 to A.D. 70. I'll be detailing more of the time text next week that we find in the end of Revelation. As we come to the end of our writing, what we, we want to find our exhortation for this morning. That's what I want us to take home. Our, our take home for the new year should be an exhortation directly from the word of God. So here in chapter 22, verses 14 through 17, it says this. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, the murderers and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say come, and let the one who hears say come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes to take of the water of life without cost. This is the reality as Christians we now enjoy. The washing of robes as symbolized by our baptism, our dying to ourselves, dying to our own righteousness, our own feeble efforts at attaining righteousness, and coming alive in him. Recognizing that if we seek first his righteousness and his kingdom, all things will be given to us, as is promised in Matthew chapter 6, six verse 33. We enter into the gates... We eat of the tree of life, his grace, without cost, free. Outside of his covenant people, we find those who are identified by their sin. We look at the world and we say, put on the robes of Christ's righteousness. Do not be identified by your sin any longer. Contrary, or in contrast to our testimony in Jesus Christ, that I have no condemnation. I am more than a conqueror in Christ, that if God is for me, who could be against me? Again, reciting all the promises of Romans chapter 8 that we have been lifting up this season. The end of the reading is an admonishment to invite, or an admonishment as an invite from the spirit and bride to those outside to come and drink of the water of life. Ultimately letting them know that it's not by their merits, not by their doing a good job of living a good life, not by their righteousness but by the righteousness that God has provided in and through Jesus Christ. This is the reality and kingdom that was birthed through the Son of God, Jesus. This is what we celebrate 2,000 years ago was born into this world as the hope fulfilled for Israel and ultimately as the joy fulfilled for us. This is what the prophets hoped for. This is our current reality. As we move into the new year, let us realize that this is the fruition of the reality that we enjoy, that we would be the embodiment of God's new heaven and new earth, the people with whom God dwells and where God can be found. This coming Thursday initiates our transition into 2016. I am excited for what I believe God wants and will birth in and through us as we walk worthy of what he has revealed and provided to us. Let all your conversations and your doings demonstrate the reality of what we discussed this morning. Invite people into the, the gates of the city. Invite them to wash their robes in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, to see the peace Love, joy, hope, all the things this world longs for are all summed up in Jesus. If only the nations would know his teachings and put them into practice. Invite others to drink of the water of life and tell them a little bit about the water of life. Maybe share with them John chapter 4, what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. 
Invite them to find the life that they long for, the life that they can have to the full as provided through Jesus Christ. Our vision for 2016 here at the church is going to be walking worthy, creating a culture that bears fruit. Join us next week as we go through the time text of Revelation and come to an understanding of how a properly applied first century understanding speaks to us today. How do we honestly, carefully, and faithfully build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ as the church as well as individual believers? I want to end our message this morning before we sing our last hymn of 2015 and offer up our last closing prayer of 2015 with a benediction from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 21. I'm going to invite everybody to please stand before I give us our benediction this morning. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing to his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And now we'll sing our closing hymn.